Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast. In the last two episodes, we've talked about the pre-Christian Scandinavian religion, both in terms of religious practices and Old Norse mythology. Today, we'll switch tracks and talk about the Christianization of Scandinavia. We'll see how the new religion spread over various regions, sometimes gradually, but most often in one fell swoop. The Old Norse religion was polytheistic and didn't have a problem with other or new gods, so initially the introduction of a new deity, namely the Christian god, wasn't necessarily such a big deal. Even some early adapters of the Christian religion in Scandinavia seemed to have balked at the idea that the old gods didn't actually exist. The drama only kicked off once the Christians started to assert their claim that their god was the only god and insisted that everyone should abandon the old gods. Understandably, this led to tension on numerous occasions during the process of Christianization. It didn't help that the new demands for religious exclusivity often came combined with a similar new demand for political loyalty to a rising royal power. Episode 20, A New Religion. Already early on, the kings of Christian Europe started to send missionaries northward to try and convert the Scandinavian heathens. This had dual motivations. On the one hand, the regular winning souls for Christ reason, but the potentates of the continent, pressured as they were by Viking raids, hoped that the message of the Prince of Peace might cool Viking tempers and make the Scandinavians more docile. But nothing lasting came of these early efforts, and the lion's share of Scandinavians remained pagans. But in the first decades of the 9th century, things slowly started to change. In the year 826, a petty king from Jutland called Harald Klock was forced to go into exile by a Horik, another Danish petty king. Harald travelled to the court of Louis the Pious, the son of Charlemagne, and, more importantly, King of Francia. Louis agreed to help Harold if he in return would agree to become a Christian. His subjects had suffered Viking raids for a generation by now and Louis hoped that some Christianity might dampen the bloodlust and greed of the Danes. Clearly, baptism was a price King Harold was willing to pay to get his realm back, so he, his family and some 400 additional Danes in his retinue were all baptized. When Harold returned to Denmark to reclaim his throne, Louis sent with him some monks who would make sure that Harold and his court didn't relapse into their old pagan ways and perhaps even win new converts in Jutland. A Benedictine monk from a noble family called Anskar was chosen to accompany the newly baptized King Harold Clark to Jutland, where the monks spread Christianity to the locals. But when King Harold was ousted yet again by his rival Horik already the following year, Anskar had to pull up stakes and return to Francia. Undeterred by the lack of success in Jutland, two years later, in 829, Louis the Pious sent Ansgar even further into Scandinavia. This time, he was dispatched to the Swedish trading town Birka. It was here that the Frankish monk would focus his proselytizing effort from now on. At the time, the Franks didn't know very much about the part of the world Ansgar was supposed to win for Christ, and they didn't learn much about it later either, because when a later missionary called Adam of Bremen wrote about Scandinavia 150 years after Ansgar, 
He claimed that the land consisted entirely of islands, and that to the east lay the vast snow-covered barren lands of the Finns, where you'd find Amazons and people with dogs' heads and cyclops with one eye only, and people who only had one foot that they jumped around on all day long. And, of course, there were also cannibals, whom you should stay away from for all the obvious reasons. Ansgar and his retinue didn't run into any cannibals, cyclops or Amazons, but they were robbed on their way to Birka. The robbers stole not only their holy books, fancy ritual vestments, silver objects like chalices and bells, but also the precious gifts that they were bringing from King Louis to the king of Birka. Despite the fact that the missionaries arrived without the gifts from Louis, the king in Birka, Björn, turned out to be friendly. Ansgar explained that he wanted to spread Christianity in the town, and after convening the thing and obtaining their consent, Björn allowed Ansgar to go ahead with his preaching. Unsurprisingly, he was well received among the Christian slaves in town, and he even managed to baptize a few locals, including Hergeir, the town's bailiff and King Björn's counselor. Such a high-profile convert was undoubtedly a nice feather in Ansgar's cap. Hergeir even built a little church in town. Things seemed to be going quite well for the newly founded Christian congregation. After a year in Birka, Ansgar returned to Francia to report on his progress. King Louis was very enthusiastic about what he heard and decided to set up a missionary diocese with a seat in Hamburg with Ansgar as its archbishop, tasked with converting the Scandinavians. A local bishop to the Swedes was also consecrated. It was a man called Gottbert, who took the name Simon as he became bishop. He went to Birka to finish what Ansgar had started. But Ansgar's and Louis' excitement was premature. Back in Birka, the unconverted majority was either indifferent or even hostile to the missionary efforts, and in the year 845, anti-Christian rioting broke out in town. Bishop Simon was attacked by those faithful to the old gods. Several of his associates were killed, and the bishop himself only survived because he managed to flee town. But a small group of Christians remained, among them Hergeir the Bailiff. The same year, King Horik also attacked Hamburg, and as a consequence, the seat of the archdiocese was moved to the relative safety of Bremen. Not a good year for Scandinavian Christendom, in other words. After the major setback in Birka, Ansgar returned in 854 to try and save his work. He met with a new king, Olaf, who explained that in order for the Christian mission to be re-established, the king needed a renewed green light from the thing at Birka and another place, possibly Uppsala. According to the Christian sources, the decision was made by casting lots, and Ansgar was lucky and won at both things. Clearly, the implication here is that God intervened on his behalf, but whether or not you believe that God cheated to make Ansgar win, the Birka congregation was re-established. Mission accomplished, Ansgar left again, hoping things would turn out better this time. In the year 860, he visited Denmark and managed to convince the new king, Horik II, not to be confused with the implacably anti-Christian Horik I, who had fought Harald Klack and sacked Hamburg, to grant him a plot of land in the trading town of Hedeby, where he could establish a modest church. A few years later, another church was consecrated in the town of Ribe on the Danish west coast, Ribe would later become the seat of the first bishop of Denmark. A few years after his second voyage to Birka and Hedeby, Ansgar died. He was canonized and hailed as the Apostle of the North. But despite his posthumous title and best efforts while he was still alive, 
not to mention some short-term success, in the long run, Ansgar hadn't achieved his goal of winning the Scandinavians for Christ. But the Christian message reached Scandinavia in other ways than just via foreign missionaries. Many Scandinavian merchants, who were baptized abroad, brought their new religion with them home. Scandinavians who settled on the continent also tended to convert at some point. Many were no doubt influenced by their Christian surroundings, and not least their Christian wives. But undergoing baptism was also good for business. For merchants, Christianity opened up new markets in places where pagans were forbidden to trade. Baptism also facilitated making connections and making friends in Christian Europe. At the same time, these newly converted Scandinavians who settled abroad often kept their business and familiar connections to Scandinavia, thus influencing their relatives and business partners still living there to join the new religion as well. Christianity also reached Scandinavia via members of the elite, who had travelled abroad and been impressed by the new religion. To many of them, Christianity seemed to be a superior religion, both in terms of power, splendour and sophistication, and it had political benefits for the ruling classes too, especially for the king. The rulers saw a clear benefit in the church's hierarchy and the ideology of submission to the Christian king by the grace of God that came with it. Of course, it can't be ruled out that one or two were actually genuinely convinced that this was the true religion, but the added bonus of being declared divinely chosen leader with almost unprecedented powers probably didn't hurt. As a consequence, the transition from the old religion to Christianity was more of a top-down process than a grassroots initiative. Conversion of a region or a country where missionaries had been trying to win souls for years with limited success frequently happened more or less overnight when the local chieftain or king demanded it. This means that even though an entire country may have become officially Christian by the stroke of a pen, the old religion almost always lingered, either as tolerated private worship or as pockets of resistance against the new order. Archaeological finds from the Stockholm area indicate that pre-Christian burial customs were still practiced almost 200 years after Sweden had been officially Christianized. And a runic inscription from the 13th century from the city of Bergen, one of the richest and most important Scandinavian cities in the Middle Ages, invokes a Valkyrie, the mythical beings who brought fallen soldiers to Valhalla. From these finds, we see that some pre-Christian elements and customs survived in Scandinavia for generations, and not only in the periphery forgotten by the church, but in the thick of things at the centre of cultural, economic and political power. Denmark was the first of the Scandinavian countries to be Christianized, and it's a good illustration of these trends that I just described. Despite the efforts of missionaries sent from England and Francia, Christianity only started to spread in Denmark after King Harald Bluetooth started to promote the new religion. Harald Bluetooth is an important figure in Danish history, and we'll get back to him in, fu in a future episode very soon. But the topic for this episode is the Christianization of Scandinavia, so we'll leave most of the political stuff on the back burner for now. Already in the 930s, Harald Bluetooth allowed Christian missionaries to preach among the Danes. But it was only approximately a quarter of a century later, around the year 960, that he himself converted to Christianity. In 975, when he had a massive runestone erected in Yelling, he bragged that he had Christianized all of Denmark. According to the pious legend, Harold Bluetooth converted to Christianity after having witnessed how a Frisian monk named Popo grabbed a red-hot lump of iron from the fire and then held on to it 
without being harmed at all. King Harold then realized that the monk was protected by a mighty god and he wanted such a powerful deity on his side too. But there might be another explanation for King Harold's change of religions. His kingdom had a large, aggressive and Christian neighbour to the south in the German Empire ruled by Otto I. Converting to Christianity was a smart move that could help Harold safeguard Danish independence since it removed a reason slash pretext for a German intervention or maybe even a wholesale takeover of Denmark. The fact that German historical records note that Harold Bluetooth was baptized in the presence of Emperor Otto I only strengthens the impression that the decision was made more due to realpolitik than spirituality. Converting himself and his kingdom to Christianity wasn't only a defensive move though. Thanks to the new religion, Harold Bluetooth gained access to a whole new cadre of learned and skilled administrators in the form of Christian clergymen. The church could supply him with an almost limitless number of literate clerks and bureaucrats who would make it much easier to run Harold's newly united kingdom. Some of the more senior clerics even had experience from the political life at various German, Frankish and English courts, and the Danish king was well served by their counsel. For regular Danes, the switch from the old religion to Christianity was even less of a spiritual choice. They didn't really have much of a choice at all. Denmark was still very much a tribal society at the time, and people were used to their chieftain deciding the family's or their clan's attitude vis-a-vis -vis Christianity. By the same token, now when the king had decided they should all be Christians, well, that was that really. But even though the vast majority of the people still were true to the old gods when Harold Bluetooth decreed that his kingdom would become Christian, the new religion was far from completely unknown to the Danes at the time. Plenty of merchants and Viking raiders had encountered it abroad, and some had even converted already, or at least had relatives in England and Francia who had become Christians. There were also plenty of Christian slaves who had been brought back to Denmark who still practiced their religion as best they could in captivity. Another factor that made the switch from one religion to another less abrupt was the fact that quite a few elements of the old Norse religion mixed into the local form of Christianity. This kind of acculturation, where Christian practices are colored by local customs and pre-Christian religion, is common and can be observed all over the world. In Denmark, as well as in the rest of Scandinavia, this could mean that the newly baptized Danes still continue to sacrifice to local spirits and mythical creatures believed to have the power to help or destroy your crops or cattle. There were also plenty of sacred spots dotting the landscape, consecrated to various deities. Some of the most important of these were located in Viborg, in Leire, Lund and Odense. Such sites were often taken over by the church and the pre-Christian gods were replaced by some suitable saint that could be revered at the same place. Chapels or churches were often built on these spots, sometimes even using timber from a pre-Christian holy grove in order to stress the continuation of holiness from one religion to another. The church in Denmark even supplied the new Christians with an assortment of local saints that they could venerate. In Viborg they had St. Schell, in Aarhus St. Nils, and in Odense St. Knuts. All of this meant that sacred practices could continue at the same place, but now dressed up in a Christian form, something that helped to ease tension and facilitated the switch to the new religion. By the middle of the 11th century, during the reign of King Knut IV, Denmark was a firmly Christian country. Even though the Danes still displayed their displeasure of the introduction of some continental Christian practices, such as tithing, 
King Knut's subjects were so displeased, in fact, that they rebelled and killed the king. But even though Knut died, he sort of kind of had the last laugh, because the church was grateful for the king's efforts to secure its finances and turned him into a saint. The canonization of St. Knut in 1188 marked the definitive triumph of Christianity in Denmark. When the body of the saint king was taken to the cathedral in Odense, a town previously associated with Odin, king of the old gods, the Danish people undertook a three-day fast of collective penitence. After his death and canonization, the murdered king became a unifying national symbol for the Danes, and this strengthened both Christianity and national unity in the kingdom. In Norway, on the other hand, the introduction of Christianity wasn't as smooth as it seems to have been in Denmark. King Håkon I, also known as Håkon the Good because of his Christianizing efforts, tried to introduce the new religion in Norway during his reign in the middle of the 10th century, so basically at the same time as Harold Bluetooth did so in Denmark. Håkon had been educated in England and adopted Christianity there. The only problem was that Håkon went about it in far too meek a way, and w when given a choice, most Norwegians preferred to remain pagans. Håkon's successor on the throne, Harold Greycloak, who just happened to be Harold Bluetooth's nephew, by the way, was more forceful in his promotion of the new religion, and went as far as destroying temples dedicated to the old gods in his effort to convince the Norwegians to convert. Harold Greycloak's methods may have been less Christian than Hawkins, but they paid off. During Harold's reign, Christianity started to spread in Norway, but when he was killed in the year 970, probably on the initiative of his uncle Harald Bluetooth of Denmark, who took over as king of Norway after his death. The day-to-day -day running of Norway was handed over to a Jarl by the name of Håkon Sigurdsson. This was bad news for the Christians, because the Jarl was a fervent champion of the old gods, and he spent considerable time and effort restoring the place and prestige of the pre-Christian religion. Christianity only made a serious comeback in Norway under Olaf Tryggvason, who, like so many other members of the noble families of Norway, had been baptized during his time abroad. In the year 995, he returned to Norway and assumed the leadership of a rebellion against the Jarl Håkon Sigurdsson. The pagan Jarl was eventually captured and killed after one of his slaves betrayed him to the rebels and led them to the pigsty where Håkon Sigurdsson was hiding. Olaf Tryggvason was now King Olaf I of Norway and he made it his mission to Christianize his kingdom once and for all. It was he who had Leif Eriksson baptized before sending him off to preach the gospel to the Greenlanders. Olaf I also revived Harald Greycloak's practice of destroying pagan temples, and he even tortured and killed people who resisted the introduction of the new religion. His efforts paid off, and by the end of his short reign, the country was Christian, at least officially. But King Olaf I fell at the Battle of Svolder in the year 1000. We'll return to that battle in a future episode, but today we'll just note that once Olaf Tryggvason was dead and out of the picture, quite a few Norwegians reverted back to their old pagan ways. But this new pagan revival wasn't to last. Already 15 years after the death of Olaf I, another Olaf, log logically enough called the Second, ascended to the throne. He was just as zealous in his Christianizing efforts as Harald Greycloak and Olaf Tryggvason had been, and he too destroyed pagan temples. It makes you wonder how many temples there actually were in Norway, or how quickly they were rebuilt. Anyway, Olaf II not only tore down temples, but also built churches. 
And believe it or not, Norwegian early churches are actually fascinating. They're constructed from timber and are commonly known as stave churches. What's particularly interesting about them is the way they look. They don't look anything like churches in the rest of the world, and one theory as to why that is claims that the people who built them didn't know what a church should look like, so they basically used the template for a shrine that they were familiar with, that is the pagan temple. Recent dendrochronological analyses of woods from stave churches actually strengthen this theory, because it turns out that some of these churches were built using logs cut down in the late 1060s. The Christianization of Norway was barely completed by then, and the people who built these churches that still stand today, you can actually go visit them on your next trip to Norway. These churches were likely built by children, or at least grandchildren, of pagans. In addition to his tearing down pagan temples and building Christian churches that looked like pagan temples, Olaf II forced church law through the Norwegian things and set up a hierarchy of priests in Norway. Many Norwegian Gothar, that is chieftains, didn't like that the high-handed king not only cut off their religious influence, but also stifled their political power, so they rebelled, and at the Battle of Stiklestad in the year 1030, King Olav was defeated and killed. Much like in the case of Knut IV in Denmark, the church in Norway now took the opportunity both to reward a staunch ally and to shore up its own position by having Olav canonized. And similarly to St. Knut in Denmark, St. Olav in Norway had a unifying effect on the Norwegians, both politically and religiously. St. Olav became the most important Scandinavian saint, and Nidaros, modern-day Trondheim, where he was buried, turned into a site of pilgrimage, attracting pilgrims from all over Scandinavia. And yes, this is the origin of the name of the hometown of Rosen Island from the Golden Girls. The old gods, or their human champions, couldn't really compete with this Christian national hero, and the old religion never made any further comebacks in Norway. But the Christian kings of Norway weren't satisfied with just winning their own kingdom for Christ. Olaf I applied his violent methods also in order to bring the North Atlantic island colonies into the fold. For instance, on his instructions, a convert called Sigmundur Brestison, who as far as we know was the first person from the Faroe Islands to be baptized, was sent back to his home archipelago to spread Christianity there. To begin with, Sigmundur thought it would be enough to just show up at the thing in Thorshavn and read a proclamation from King Olaf I that the people of the Faroe Islands were now to become Christians. But that plan failed spectacularly, and Sigmundur only managed to infuriate the assembled people, who almost killed him on the spot. Sigmundur decided to change his tactics, but not to abandon force. He gathered his posse of heavily armed men, and went to the home of the local Godi Trondr i Götu. For maximum effect, Sigmundur and his band of warriors showed up without warning in the middle of the night and gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. Be baptized or beheaded. Trondr chose baptism, but in retrospect, Sigmundur should probably have killed him, because when he had the chance, the Godi played the same trick on Sigmundur, showing up at his house in the middle of the night, and he wasn't planning on giving Sigmundur any opt-outs. But Sigmundur managed to escape by jumping into the sea. He swam as far as he had the strength to, and finally crawled up on land close to the village Sandvik, only to be killed immediately by a local farmer. 
Nonetheless, in the long run, the Faroese had no way to reject the demands made by the King of Norway, and Olav is credited with Christianizing the Faroe Islands, as well as the Shetland and Orkney Islands, which were all under the Norwegian crown at the time. Even though Iceland was much larger than these minor collections of islands, and the Icelandic Commonwealth was independent and not ruled by Norway, the Icelanders also felt the pressure of the proselytizing zeal of King Olav I. The first Scandinavians who settled in Iceland in the 9th century worshipped the old gods, and the Old Norse religion had been firmly established in the new land for about a century or so before Iceland was reached by the first serious attempts at mass conversion. In all likelihood, there had been Christians in Iceland throughout its populated history. In fact, as we've discussed before, it's very likely that Irish monks had set foot on the island even before the first Scandinavians arrived. But even after the settlement had begun, there was a continuing Christian presence. In the beginning, primarily in the form of Christian slaves, taken or bought in the British Isles. But in the 10th century, it became increasingly common that Icelandic merchants and Vikings returned home not only with a fortune and some wild stories about their time abroad, but also with a new religion. From the late 970s, we know of some missionary work as well. Much like in the case of the Faroe Islands, the first person who tried to convert Iceland was a returning local man. In the Icelandic case, his name was Thorvald Konradsson. But Thorvald didn't manage to convert many Icelanders, beyond his father and the rest of his family. Just like Sigmundur Prestison in the Faroe Islands, Thorvald thought that he'd be successful in convincing the people assembled at the Althing to abandon their old gods in favor of Christ. And just like Sigmundur Prestison, he was sorely mistaken. When Thorvald showed up at the Althing with a bishop in tow, they were not only laughed at, but insulted in skaldic verse. The pagan poetry slam must have really rubbed Thorvald the wrong way, because he killed two men and caused a violent rift between Christians and pagans in Iceland. The small Christian community was under pressure, and Thorvald Konradsson himself left the island in 986, never to return. But if the Icelanders thought that they would be left to worship Odin, Thor, Frey and all the other Old Norse gods in peace when they saw Thorvald's ship disappear over the western horizon, they were in for a rude awakening. When Olav I became king of Norway and started to force Christianity upon unwilling Scandinavians, he didn't limit himself to his own subjects. Soon after assuming power, the new king sent an Icelander called Stepnir Thorgilson to Iceland to convert his countrymen. Stepnir destroyed several sanctuaries and images of the old gods, but the only thing he accomplished that way was to get himself outlawed. King Olav then decided to go with a pro and sent a priest named Thangbrandt to convince the Icelanders to open their hearts to the Christian faith. Olav had high hopes for Thangbrandt. He had experienced from Norway and the Faroe Islands, where he'd converted heathens left and right. The priest arrived in Iceland in 997 and would stay for two years. During his time in Iceland, he did manage to convert a number of prominent Icelanders, but on the other hand, he also happened to kill a few people. So, in the year 999, he thought it best to quit Iceland and return to Norway and report back to King Olav. After hearing about Thangbrand's very partial success, Olav decided that he'd had enough. He ordered all Norwegian ports closed to non-Christian Icelanders. The king even seized the son of powerful Icelandic families who happened to be in Norway, and he held them hostage in an attempt to convince their families back home in Iceland to adopt the new religion. 
He even threatened to kill them unless their families embraced Christianity. Now this was a real problem. Not the hostage situation, mind you. Don't get me wrong, that was probably awkward enough for the families involved, but it wasn't an existential threat to Iceland. But the closing of the ports, that was something else completely. Norway was essential for Iceland's connection to the rest of the world. Without access to Norwegian ports, Iceland would be isolated and be strangled economically and culturally. What were the Icelanders to do? Fight Olav? Convert? Neither option seemed particularly appealing. Unsurprisingly, the crisis led to rising tensions between Christians and pagans in Iceland, with both groups targeting each other for violence. Those Icelanders, who had already been baptized, exploited the crisis to the best of their ability, trying to convince their stalwart countrymen that without Christianization, the Icelandic Commonwealth was doomed. And they had a point. Iceland was completely dependent on Norway as its gateway to the world. But on the other hand, they weren't some Norwegian colony like the Orkney, Shetland or Faroe Islands. Theirs was an independent Commonwealth, a political unit that had existed for a century long before the unification of Norway, if they caved in to the demands from the Norwegian king now, what would be the next step? Not to mention the religious aspect. What would the gods do if the Icelanders abandoned them just to keep the king of Norway happy? What kind of punishment could irate deities be expected to bring down on their heads? Was it worth taking the risk? Things came to a head at the Althing, the governing body of the Commonwealth, in the summer of the year 1000, or possibly 999. If a decision wasn't made, civil war threatened to tear the Icelandic Commonwealth apart, and if they somehow managed to stay united, the threat of a Norwegian blockade, and possibly even an invasion, loomed large on the horizon. But no matter how long they argued and how heated the debate, the assembled men at Thingvetlir weren't able to reach a decision. Both sides were far too entrenched. In the end, the Althing decided that the matter should be solved by arbitration. They gave the law speaker, Thorgeir Thorkilsson, the mandate to decide what they would all do. Everyone agreed that Thorgeir was an excellent choice. He was a Gothi and an important man in the cult of the old gods, so the pagans hoped that he would side with them. But he was also a rich man with important trade connections in Norway, so the Christians hoped he'd side with them. Thorgeir accepted the momentous task of deciding whether Iceland would remain true to the old gods or join the Christian nations of Europe. But he did so on one condition. Everyone had to commit in advance to accepting his decision, whatever it would be. After obtaining everyone's consent, the honourable law speaker crept in under a fur blanket where he stayed for a day and a night mulling over the issue. When he emerged the following day, he announced his decision. Every Icelander would be baptized, and from now on, Christianity would be the official religion of the island. But he had three important conditions. 1. Private worship of the old gods would still be allowed. 2. It would still be allowed to eat horse meat. And 3. It would still be allowed to kill surplus newborns by leaving them to die in the wild. The pagans were fine with this compromise, since adding another god to their already long list of gods wasn't so bad as long as they could still go on worshipping the old ones. Besides, they would still be able to feast on horse meat and get rid of children they couldn't feed. The Christians also accepted the conditions, at least for now. Once the church was strong enough, horse meat, infanticide and private pagan rituals were eventually all banned in Iceland as well. After the Althing was dissolved that summer, 
Thorgeir Thorkelson took his idols of the old gods and threw them into one of the more impressive waterfalls in northern Iceland, which ever since has been known as Waterfall of the Gods, or Godafoss in Icelandic. In many ways, the conversion of Iceland is an extraordinary episode. The Icelanders managed to diffuse a highly divisive issue and neutralize a foreign threat to the country's very existence at the same time as they demonstrated the strength and resilience of their political system. Quite impressive when you think about it. The political structure in Iceland was undoubtedly an important factor for the peaceful transition from one religion to another, and in more ways than one. It's true that the Althing and its law speaker did enjoy the universal respect of all Icelanders, which made it possible to enforce Thorgeir Thorkelson's decision without any executive tools of power. But, at least equally important, was the fact that the power and influence of the Godar, that is the chieftains, weren't threatened by the decision. In other Scandinavian countries, such as Denmark and Norway, Christianization meant a transfer of power to the king at the expense of the local chieftains, who not only lost their religious functions, but also at least some of their political power. As we've seen, this led to rebellions against the crown both in Denmark and in Norway. In Iceland, however, the church was so weak that the introduction of Christianity didn't mean that the Godar lost their religious influence, it just changed in nature. Instead of leading the cult, they now built churches on their land and either became priests themselves or hired and paid the salary of their priests, thus controlling them. Only in the year 1056 did Iceland receive its first bishop, and even after that the church in Iceland was still largely in private hands, unlike the situation in mainland Scandinavia. This way, the rich Icelandic families stayed in control of religion, making the transition smoother. Just like Norway and Denmark, Iceland would eventually have their own local saints as well. The first Icelandic saint was Bishop Thorlakur Thorhatlson, who lived in the late 12th century. He became a saint in 1198, five years after his death. Two years later, Bishop Jon Ögmundsson was also declared a saint. An interesting detail about this pair of saints is that they are the only two saints ever to have been canonized by parliamentary vote. That's because, at the time, the Vatican still didn't have an official monopoly on canonizing saints, and the Althing doubled as church synod in Iceland. But it took almost 800 years for the canonization to receive official Vatican approval when Pope John Paul II declared Thorlakur the national saint of Iceland in 1984. In many ways, the triumph of Christianity over the Old Norse religion heralded the end of the Viking Age and the beginning of the Scandinavian Middle Ages. Leading Scandinavian chieftains with ambitions of kingship found Christianity, or at least the bureaucracy and hierarchy of the church, to be useful tools in their efforts to unite large areas under newly established crowns. Christianity also provided a convenient ideology extolling the ideal state with a Christian king at the top, ruling everyone. That way, the church provided both an ideological blessing and administrative expertise in early Scandinavian state formation. Much like in the rest of Europe, this created a mutually beneficial symbiosis between the newly established church and the newly emerging state. Next time, we'll start looking at this parallel process, arguably intrinsically connected to Christianization, and referring to the formation of the three Scandinavian kingdoms, Norway, Denmark and Sweden. But before we go today, I would like to say thank you to everyone who's taken the time and effort to review the podcast or who's sent me messages either on Facebook or on Twitter. It's always nice to receive feedback and questions. Whether you've been in touch or not, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast.
If you did, please consider leaving a favorable review wherever you can. Don't forget that if you want to know more about Old Norse mythology, you can buy my book called Viking Mythology, Thor, Odin, Loki, and the Old Norse Myths. Look for it on Amazon or just Google it. Buying the book is an excellent way to support the podcast. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. If Twitter is your social media platform of choice, then you can follow and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.